0: A podcast where we have conversations for the sober and the sober curious, hosted by me, Maz Compton, sober since 2015. Hello, my dear, wondrous, beautiful friends. How are we all going? <sighs> Deep breath. I've actually had a real roller coaster of a few weeks. I know there's been a new episode of Last Drinks published every Monday, but I've actually had a secret little break in between all of that. And I needed one because I had a bit of a health crisis to say the least. Um, But I am okay. And I think that is the good news and the main thing. And I'm pushing through. So I'm sending all of the uh, healing vibes out there to anybody who's going through some health stuff. Because when you get knocked for six for your health, it's not fun at all. Um, But I'm happy to report that I am okay and I am going to be okay and I will probably divulge more detail on that when I'm ready to talk about it. I'm not ready yet. It's still very raw and it's still very fresh, but I'm here and today I'm going to be talking to a delightful human being all the way from Virginia in the US. Now, quickly speaking of the US, My book, Last Drinks is now available in Barnes & Noble stores in America. And I, look, to be honest, I kind of forgot that was happening. The book launch has gone really well in Australia. I know so many of you have purchased a copy and I appreciate all of the wonderful feedback and messages and emails that I've got to say how much you've enjoyed reading the book and what you got out of it. And I wanted to just share a message that I got. Yesterday morning on an email, it says, Subject, amazing book. Dear Maz, just wanted to thank you for changing my life. Your book jumped out at me in Barnes and Noble. I think it might have been somebody from up above. Thank you again. Love, Patty from Detroit. Thank you, Patty. Thank you for looking out for the signs and thank you for uh, letting the book jump out at you. I just cannot wrap my head around at the moment that my book was sitting on a bookshelf in Detroit like where Eminem is from and somebody saw it and got it and read it and loved it and has taken some of the really useful information that I've put together in this book and used that stuff to make a positive change in their life and create some better choices for themselves and I just Oh, God! That fills me up. It really just makes me feel amazing. so I just I'm so grateful. I guess the reason that I shared that is i'm I'm grateful to know that this book is helping people, as is this podcast. and with that said, let's get stuck in today. I'm chatting to Laura Lee Wright. She lives in Virginia in America. She has written a book it's called Speaking of Books. Everyone's writing books these days, and I highly recommend it because the process is very cathartic. Her book is called Beyond Sober. Put, you put down the booze, now what? Straight talk for the newly sober. Um, I'm super pumped about chatting to her about her book. I'm really grateful that Laura shared an e-copy of her book with me, and I've been able to read it, so I'm really pumped about unpacking that with her. So here's a mouthful of last drinks with Laura Lee Wright. Let's get into it. I want to know about your last drink, Laura. Tell me about your last drink.
1: You know, I knew I was coming on here and so I was thinking about my last drink and it's uh, it's more than a drink. It's just kind of like this horrible uh, series of drinks, really, because it like so many people, I've heard the stories similar to mine, so I'm not unique, but... You know, the evening started with wine, but then I ran out of wine. And so I went and searched for alcohol in the house. And my last drink was in February. So um, in the year that I quit, it was February. So it was after Christmas, but quite a ways after Christmas. In the back of my refrigerator, I found two half bottles of flat champagne that had been in the back of my refrigerator since the holidays. And those two half bottles were my last drinks. Um, and we can say it was quite nasty because it was flat champagne mm. that had been uncorked and in my refrigerator for over three months. But that's where the disease had taken me. It had taken me to the point where I was going to drink those regardless.
0: I'm just having flashbacks to a time where I tried to open a bottle of red wine with a shoe, because, which I had seen on YouTube because I didn't have a cork opener, like a corkscrew in my apartment at the time, because I had just moved. And the only bottle of red wine that I had in my apartment at midnight, after I'd had a a previous bottle of Savion Blanc was one with a cork in it. So Uh I understand the desperation in those, in those decisions (laughs) and the flat champagne, I've had a few flat champagnes in my day, um, yeah. And so, okay. So that's, that's the last night. So your February in what year
1: was this? 2018.
0: So leading up to 2018, I'm sure there's a rich history of drinking behavior that leads you to a moment where, you know, that's when the penny drops for you or the line gets drawn in the sand. There's something about that moment for you where you are like, huh, I'm going to make a change the next day or the day after or whenever that was. But leading up to the flat champagne, what was your drinking behavior like? What was your experience with alcohol? Did you did you feel desperation heading into February of 2018 about your relationship with alcohol?
1: Had you looked at it like that? So, there's never been a time in my life where alcohol hasn't been center stage, and that's probably in utero because I am a multi-generational alcoholic. So I saw it with my parents and I actually at one point in my life thought I had completely escaped it, that I wasn't gonna be an alcoholic. I had married someone who was an abusive drinker and we had little kids and I didn't drink and I thought, oh, I've got this. I made it until the kids got big enough that I could have a glass or two at night which, you know, turned into a bottle or maybe two bottles. And so the progressiveness of this insidious disease got me over the years. But for me, I was a late bloomer. I was in my early 40s before I started drinking heavily and abusively and basically destructively.
0: Um, This is a term for what you just described, where you've come to drinking later in life, but you've caught up real fast. It's a phenomenon within women. It's called telescoping. And they've actually, there is scientific research around this that in general, women can't. And maybe it is, I didn't kind of connect the two, but maybe it is because we bear children. And and generally speaking, I do think for a lot of people at a time of pregnancy, you'll abstain from alcohol for Mm -hmm. obvious reasons, you know. And then you do have little kids and we're busy and so we don't want to be hungover. And so- we, we kind of delay our um, ability to lean into alcohol because of our circumstances. But when those circumstances change, as you just described, the kids get bigger. They're always getting bigger. Um, <laughs> then you have an opportunity to sneak a one here and sneak a one there. And that's the relief and that's the comfort and that's the relax and that's the reward. And then it's like it gets so, it escalates really quickly for women And also because we don't have this particular enzyme as high in our systems as men that digests the alcohol out of our system. So the alcohol just like completely screws with us in a physiological way. And then I think mentally we're like, we need some sort of relief and the alcohol does replicate the relief in our brain. So, so many things about that scenario. I'm like, God, that's
1: so unfair on us. It is it is terribly unfair. It's just like like when I go on a diet with my fiance, you know, he loses 50 pounds and I'm still fighting that five pounds, you know, because my body's yeah. like, oh, I'll hold on to the fat. I'll hold on to the alcohol. I'll, you know, everything just seems to be harder. It's ha-
0: It is. It's harder, I think, for women in general. And then as we get older... There's all of these drop offs of stuff that made it easier when we were younger, and we're just up against it. So, you said you're a multi generational alcoholic. So, what did your childhood look like? You know, how how did you understand that your parents, I'm not sure if it was both or just the one parent, um, had a drinking issue? Like, Mm -hmm. did it just feel like you just had a regular childhood? What was that like for you?
1: That's an interesting question because to me it was a regular childhood until it until I learned that it wasn't, right? So both my parents were very active alcoholics, and um, and for me that was just normal. It was normal for a mom and dad to fight. It was normal for there to be just insanity in our house, and. You know, there were times where, like I remember one time, the neighbors having to come over and get us out of our house. And we I remember I was only like four or five years old, and I was hiding in their hallway because my father was incredibly drunk and running around our neighborhood with a gun. And so and my my father was a gun collector. He was, you know, this was his thing. But when he got drunk, he would get a gun. Luckily, he never shot anybody, but he could have. You know, and, and those, those were just common things like, oh, the neighbors came and got me and I hid in the hallway while dad ran around drunk with a gun. I guess I'll go to school today. You know, that was just normal.
0: That is just mind blowing to me because as a kid, you do just think it's normal because you've got nothing to level it up to. But may I say that my childhood was slightly different and at no point did either of my parents run around the neighborhood for anything. We were quite the reclusive family, let alone <laughs> with a gun. But that was your normal. And yep. so as a kid, you pro- you just processed that as like, oh yeah, dad had a few drinks and off he goes, he's got his gun again. And then yeah, like I'll get dressed for school and off we go. That's wild. Yep.
1: And and, and it sounds wild, and and it sounds wild as it comes out of me, but it's still, I still can go back to that five and six-year-old girl who thought that was normal, and when I think about it in my mind, um, you know, we were in the middle of the desert in Arizona. It was a really kind of um, how the West was one kind of thing, you know, when you Mm. think of Americans and you think of that whole John Wayne thing, that's what was happening in Arizona in the 1970s and 80s, so... Mm. It wasn't weird to me.
0: When did it things probably...
1: get weird? Like where, at
0: what point did your, you know, teenage <laughs> brain go, hang on a second.
1: My friend's dads don't do this. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, as you can imagine, two alcoholic participants in a, in a marriage, the marriage didn't last. And so my parents split up. And I, and so I lived with my mom. Um with my siblings. And that was when I think we began to notice, or I began to notice that my mom had a drinking problem too. It just manifested differently because she was a woman. She didn't, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't aggressive. I'm not saying women aren't aggressive, but what I'm saying is she wasn't aggressive. She didn't fight. You know, she would get on the phone and she would talk to relatives for hours and hours. And, she would date a lot and bring a lot of different men home and she would go to bars and she would cry a lot. You know, she was just, you know, a disaster. My mother was a disaster until she got sober.
0: Okay. Oh my gosh. I want, I don't know whether to ask you, how did your mum get sober or tell me about what happened after your two bottles of flat champagne? Maybe let's chat about mum quickly. <laughs> so was, sure. I mean, do you know much of the, I guess the decision making process behind her deciding to stop drinking? Cause that's, it sounds like that would have been a really huge call for her
1: so i think that she didn't have any choice and i and i now know looking back in retrospect i was only 10 11 years old when she got sober but what had happened is that my older siblings who were you know more than a decade older than me had had enough and they just kicked her out one night and they were just like mom we've had enough they were old enough right they were in their late teens early 20s -hmm. and they were like we've had enough we'll take care of laura you're out and they kicked her out. And so she, we lived in this little tiny town. It, by then we had moved to the Midwest and Missouri, which, you know, is in the middle of our country and it's very southern um, thinking. And she a tiny town. She was just walking down the middle of the street and she got picked up by the police and she was given a she was given a choice. She could go to rehab or she could go to jail. She chose rehab, got sober, and became a drug and alcohol counselor and helped thousands of people get sober until she passed away in the early 1990s.
0: Oh my God. Wow. And so how did that change your relationship with her when she was sober? She would have been a
1: person that you'd never met before. My mother stayed private and she stayed, uh, she kept everything close. It's, I didn't have a close relationship with my mother. I knew she loved me and she did her best to take care of me. And she always encouraged me. And I admire her. I admired her for the life that she was able to carve out for herself in the end. Mm. Uh, but I was only 25 years old when she passed away. And and so I never really knew her. Um, wow. But I think she did great things. Um, I still hear from people whose lives she impacted 30 some years ago. So she definitely did something good.
0: That's beautiful.
1: And so you've had a couple of half bottles of flat
0: champagne in February of 2018, (laughs) Laura. And so what was the thought process about getting sober?
1: I woke up the next morning as it wasn't unusual, you know, uh, it wasn't unusual to wake up with a headache. It wasn't unusual to roll over and think, gosh, I don't want to go to work today. You know, so I just texted my boss and say, oh, I'm going to work from home. And, um, Opened my eyes all the way. And then the reality of what had happened the night before came rushing back to me. I didn't have a blackout that night. I remember everything. And I always said, I'm not hurting anybody else but myself. I'm not hurting my kids. You know, I'm just drinking after I get home from work. And then I'm going to bed. Nobody knows any, nobody's any wiser. Um, But my middle son was in the middle of breaking up with his very first girlfriend. And he was 16. Aww. And... So at some point at one or two in the morning, I turned into a 16-year-old girl and decided I was gonna start texting his girlfriend. Oh. And I I did. And it was an absolute just disaster. Who does that? You know, what mom does that? Well, a drunk mom who's just drank, you know, what's left mm. in her refrigerator. That's who does that. But I woke up in the morning and I realized that I needed help. It was Mm -hmm. I didn't do anything. Something happened and I was like, this is it. I can't do this anymore.
0: How did your son respond to the text messages?
1: That would have been tricky. There is something that um, I will never, ever forget because he peeked his head in my room at two o'clock in the morning and he said, mom, you have to stop. And my heart broke. Yeah. And I did stop. Um, yeah. And then when he walked in from school the next day, just absolutely, he was wrecked. She yeah. had completely broken up with him. Like, Shh, your, your family's nuts. Um, and my heart was so broken at that moment. I knew that something had to change.
0: When your son said to you at two in the morning, you have to stop. Was he talking about the text messages or was he talking about the alcohol?
1: You know who knows. Mm. That would be a conversation to have with him. Yeah,
0: because I wonder he may have intended it one way and it may have landed the other. You know, but but yeah. whichever way it, whichever way you got that message into that, you know, those holes in your heart at the time, um, it landed because you said yes. something switched, and so then yeah. what happens on day one? <laughs>
1: I knew one person um, who was in, a, you know, in a program locally um, that I could reach out to. And, you know, this was the program that my mom had um, had gotten help from. Yeah. And so I reached out to this one person he, and he just kind of guided me through and said, hey, this is where you need to go. This is who you need to talk to. And I just started taking my first steps um, into sobriety and into a sober life.
0: And how long, because it sounds like, you know, you you daily drank. It was a regular, very regular occurrence for you. How long did it kind of take your system to recalibrate and for you to kind of feel like, oh, this is this is a good choice. Like I'm heading in a a new direction now that feels good. Cause for some people, they see the pink cloud really early on and they're hooked into sobriety. And for
1: other people, it's like,
0: Oh God, this is really hard.
1: Um, I can't say that I found it hard. I did not, uh, find it hard at all. I knew what to do and how to do it because I had a great role model in my mother and it never occurred to me to stop stepping forward
0: and how did this affect your relationship with your partner at the time
1: were you in a relationship (laughs) at the time um I was not I was in the middle of a divorce at the time okay Um, okay yeah. yeah, so I was in the middle of a divorce. I think I think the biggest relationships uh, at the, that were immediately impacted were I have four children, but two of them had grown and moved out, but I still had two at home, and they were teenage boys. They were 15 and 16 years old, and immediately my relationship with them was impacted by my sobriety in a good way, in a positive way, and that continues today.
0: Amazing. I just... Oh, it's your, it, it's such, the thing that I find really just inspiring, I think about your story, hearing it from you, Laura, like I've read, you know, bit the bits that you divulge in the book, but hearing it mm-hmm. out of, out of you is like, this has been a lifelong mission from like, yes. from the get go. Some people grow up in families where alcohol is just so common. It, it's the fabric of the family, it ruins the family. And then because that's the example that has been set um, in the formative years in our young development, what choice do we have when we land in the same spot? Like you weren't roaming the neighbourhood waving a gun around, but you were doing damage to yourself and your relationships with this substance that we need to have a bigger conversation about how damaging alcohol really is, you Mm. know, in, on a, on a personal level, in a relational level, on a societal level, on a cultural level. But I feel it just so amazing that from that, like with the odds stacked so hard against you, you still found a day where you went, I can rise above this. And I know one person. And I will call that person. And that's why I love telling stories because this could be that moment for someone else where they're like, I heard one story and that was the story that made me decide that I'm going to make generational change now. So this is the thing that you're teaching your kids, right, is this generational change can stick. And even though they had that molding when they were younger, you've switched it to, to this new iteration of yourself in sobriety. And I think it's just really commendable. I just think it's amazing that you've done that.
1: Thank, thank you so much. And as I mentioned, I have four children and this is a generational disease and I am holding the hand of my oldest son right now as he navigates sobriety. Um, mm. at, at the tender age of 26 is getting sober Wow. Uh, and and we're navigating that with him. But I am so happy to be able to be the sober example, you know? Yeah. I
0: mean, he's got, he's got a pretty good role model there. (laughs) That's a pretty good hand holder. There it is. Laura Lee Wright's Last Drink. In the next episode of Last Drinks, we will talk about Laura Lee Wright's new book, It's called Beyond Sober. It's available now. And she's going to be sharing some of the wisdom that she has around sobriety and one very real practical tool on how to deal with a part of sobriety that we don't really ever talk about. That's next week. I'll catch you then. Thanks for listening. Make sure you click follow so you don't miss an episode. New episodes are published every Monday. You can follow us on TikTok at Last Drinks Or catch up with me on Instagram at MazCompton. Stay curious! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus,